This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Bonsai N, Australia's premium online bonsai store. You can shop now and pay later with Afterpay and same-day shipping. So check us out at www.bonsai-en.com.au. That's bonsai-en.com.au. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. So be sure to give us a follow to be the first to know about all our new episodes of the podcast and our new release videos. Alright, Modern Bonsai listeners. This week we have a very special guest with us who needs zero introduction. It is Ryan Neal from Bonsai Marai. For those of you who don't know, Ryan is trained in Japan and is also a podcast master. So sit back, relax and enjoy this episode. Even though it was short, it was dense, but we thank Ryan for joining us. Here we go. It's a lot harder for them out there. Yeah. People like me, um, I don't know if you'll get time to visit it, but there's a place called Bonsai World. It's near Hughes Place. Uh-huh. And they've got they've got over 60,000 bonsai trees on the property. Wow. Like stock trees. And, you know, they've got even more coming. They're putting down like 25,000 junipers at the moment and, you know, putting down black pine seeds and... Um, that's a lot. That's a... Uh... How many people are, how many people are working there? They have around four or five, but they have like big systems set up. So they've mm-hmm. got a dam down there, and it's got about like ten million liters of water in it. Wow! And they've just got like a big pump and just big irrigation systems, and they got a huge property down there. That's a that's a really interesting aspect of of bonsai in Australia that I don't quite understand because. You have like this major, there's like a major gap almost, you know, like uh, there are becoming professionals that are doing bonsai at a really wonderful level of practice and approach, but there are massive scale bonsai operations in Australia, like the one you're talking about that I've never seen anything like that. We don't have anything like that in the United States. Yeah. You know? And it's like, how did, how did Australia go to from sort of like fledgling bonsai bypass like that sort of uh, bonsai professional phase and just go straight to just like hardcore bonsai industrial approach, you know, it's, (laughs) uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's just, um, you know, when something starts off, there's always those people who see a gap or something in the market. Right. So, you know, they go for it. And, right. You know, Ash out of Bonsai World, he, growing up, he was a horticulturalist. Right. And he used to work in uh, just like a regular garden shop. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a bonsai section. Mm. And he kind of took that over. And then eventually he started his own bonsai nursery and it was just small and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And when that's all that you do is just grow stock, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And and I mean, he's got people that come in there and they buy by the trailer loads, like literally by the trailer loads. And it's getting to the point now where he can't keep up with everything. Wow. 
<laughs> so it's been it's successful for him then. Oh yeah, we're talking about a guy that's got sixty thousand plants and he's worried about his stock levels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's great. And I mean that just tells you about how how bonsai in Australia is coming up mm-hmm. because this is one small little area. This is the central coast of New South Wales, mm-hmm. and we've got a nursery with sixty thousand plants that's you know worried about their stock levels. Do you think that that is representative of bonsai in Australia, or do you think that that is representative of the public's awareness of the art form? I think both. Mm-hmm. I think um, now with the internet and podcasts and things like Mariah Live, that's really pushing bonsai to a higher level. Mm-hmm. And I think also here in Australia, we've got, like a big garden shop called Bunnings and they stock like small like gift trees mm-hmm. I guess in America you probably call them Molzai right but they're just really low quality something that you can get off the shelf and I think that is probably one of the biggest promoters of bonsai here yeah people see that and they go oh I love that and then they buy one and then they kind of start researching on how to take care of it or fertilize it, trim it, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they get on Google and, you know, try and find an actual bonsai store. And then they, they come across places, you know, like Bonsai N or Bonsai World. And right. and then they see what bonsai is really like. Right. Because, you know, you go out to Bonsai World and not only do they have all the stock there, but they actually do have a show section. Mm-hmm. So they've got huge trees that they've dug, like Yamadori and... Mm. They've got their like top eighty trees where you can walk around and have a look at all that stuff. So it's a real eye opener. Sounds like so much labor. Oh, it is. That's got to be a monster. Yeah, because I actually had him on the podcast, the guy that owns it, Ashley, and um, he was saying, you know, he needs another ten hours in the day and another yeah. ten more men because it's just if you were to look at even one aspect of bonsai he can't keep up with it. Yeah. So just even something as simple as keeping the weeds out of the pots, mm-hmm. it's just something you can't keep up with. And Yeah, with 60,000 trees, that's that seems virtually impossible. Yeah, and then on top of that, you've got, um, you know, because they are a bonsai nursery, they don't just grow the stock. They mm-hmm. wire it. So when they're, you know, planting shimpaku whips or anything like that they're wiring the whips mm-hmm. and the smaller junipers they're wiring them to get the first movement in the trunk so when people come to buy their first piece of bonsai stock it's already got you know some nice movement in it sure so the amount of work that's been done it's just it's crazy yeah that's a lot and taking the wire off is what people don't think about too. Yeah, <laughs> unwiring is maybe more of a pain in the butt than wiring. Yeah, well, we were actually talking about that because they were saying that one of their most handiest tools is a set of wire cutters. Because yeah. when you're unwiring trees all day long, you learn how valuable they actually are. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But in where you guys are, Telperian Farms, is that kind of similar? Do they have? I mean, they probably don't have 60,000 trees, but they've got a lot of stock yeah, trees. Yeah, I wonder how many trees they have. Telperion's a monstrosity. It's it's a it's a big facility that is run by a very minimal number of people working super hard. Um, and they they have their they have all of their systems figured out really well. But um, 
Telperion has been around long enough that their stuff in the ground is just super duper mature. It's big, it's thick, it's been grown well, it's been pruned well. It's it's any tree there could be a great bonsai. Yep. And uh yeah, I guess I guess yeah, I guess maybe thinking about Telperion. Yeah. Yeah. Telperion would be would be maybe the one big big. And I'm sure there's other growing operations in the United States that I have not seen that are quite substantial. Um, but you know, 60,000 is a big number. And just thinking about if you touch each one of those, yeah, that's a lot of touches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Those guys are working around the clock. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Australia going big you guys go big. <laughs> Got to go big with everything. You do. You go big. So with, um, with bonsai that you've seen, I kind of, I've spoken about this before in the podcast, but I feel like in countries that are not Japan, Mm -hmm. that aren't quite as aged and haven't had the art form around as long, do you feel like that those countries, including America, Australia, and maybe places like India, Vietnam, well, probably not Vietnam because their figs are absolutely huge. Yeah, not Vietnam. Um... But with, with the rest of those countries, do you feel like that all those countries are putting forward their Yamadori rather than your classic stock like junipers and pines because Yamadori is already somewhat matured and you're you're starting halfway up the chain rather than if you were to have a Shimpaku, mm-hmm. it would take, you know, 20, 25 years to grow into a big tree and then you've got another you know, five years, 10 years of development on top of that. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like, because when, when I look at America in terms of bonsai, I see like a lot of Rocky Mountain junipers and things like that. I feel like that's the big thing that's been pushed and I feel like that's the image that's been portrayed for American bonsai is sure. those kind of trees. Yeah. And then when you look at Australian bonsai, you see things like, tea trees mm-hmm. or melaleucas and things like that is that something that you've noticed as well yeah i think well i mean i think when you look at it it's like what what differentiates bonsai in australia from bonsai in the united states or you know bonsai in south america or and it comes down to your native trees right because everybody now not not necessarily everybody, but I, I think like Japanese black pine and shimpaku juniper and <clears throat> in most parts of the world, Japanese maple, if they can be grown or these widely distributed staple species. And in the, in the practice of bonsai, you know, the ability to not have to make a choice about how you're going to pursue the art form or and not having to make a choice or sort of cut off any segment of opportunity to to be creative and utilize the medium to explore means that everybody's going to have a black pine and a shimpaku juniper and potentially a japanese maple or some equivalent and how does that how does that show australian bonsai at its best yeah you know what i'm saying yeah. but but when you look at what makes australian bonsai different now all of a sudden it's your Kunzia and your Melaleuca and your tea tree and your Banksia. It, these are the species that nobody else has that, yes, they have that maturity, but they also 
show that Australian bonsai has something besides sort of that the duplication of the bonsai model from Japan. And I think, you know, with the United States and what we've what what people see of bonsai in the United States is probably only a true reflection of you know the western united states in terms of the landscape that's being represented by those pieces of material um but i think what it's done is it's expanded people's ideas and thought process about what is possible with our collected material have we actually explored it that hard and uh what's unique to my region that i could be pursuing a high level of bonsai with you know, across all of the different pockets of the United States, because North America is a, a big landscape, much like Australia. And I mean, I, I say this all the time, but I still don't think we've even scratched the surface of collectible material in the United States. Yeah, cause I, I've seen some of the mountains there and it's just it's absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. And I mean, the the kind of geological and special condition that that creates stunted junipers or pines is very unique you know each 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 really old yamadori species has a different condition that creates a beautiful piece of yamadori and so uh to get what we you know are are probably guilty of assuming we should be getting in yamadori or or are looking for with yamadori those environments even though the landscape is expansive those environments are quite rare which i think is why sustainable collection and really consideration of the environment is imperative uh to to a bonsai culture perpetuating itself yep. valuing those landscapes and not defiling those landscapes but also valuing the material and not um you know, gross consumptively removing it and just sort of at a, at a sustainable pace is, is imperative. But I think beyond that, all of the landscapes for all of those other species that have never been thought about as bonsai that create really worthy material have yet to even be thought about or discovered, let alone, you know, accessed and attempted to be utilized. Yeah. So for the junipers and pines, it's like, cool, we understand that. Well, what about the mahoganies or the sages or, uh, you know, the willows or the hornbeams or the, the native maple. I mean, it's just like anywhere in the United States, there is something that yeah. is capable of being a fantastic bonsai. The same with Australia. And you guys are starting to figure that out. Yeah, we're lucky in a different way than you are. As mm-hmm. you said before, we've got the, the different species here. I mean, I can't remember what the movie was called, but uh, my partner was watching a movie a couple of months ago and it was uh about firefighters and it was in the united states mm-hmm. and uh they were trying to stop this mountain from burning and in the movie it was just the whole mountain was covered in junipers absolutely mm-hmm. big beautiful trees yeah. and, and then they just had this one mammoth juniper up on top of the mountain and that's what they were trying to stop from burning yep and as the fire was moving up the up the hill i could just feel my soul burn <laughs> i was like man <laughs> yeah 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 that uh you know the forest fires there was a um massive fire season i want to say in 2015 or 16 in in the rocky mountains that was utterly devastating you know for for bonsai like yeah. like uh you know not I wouldn't say half and who knows what percentage of, of really valuable 
land that was that was known, you know, collected on, had historical value, burned up. And, and that can happen at any time, mm. you know, but, and I mean, it's, it's interesting because, um, it, it creates a new landscape for Yamadori of the, you know, 200 years in the future to be born on, you know, as the restoration of the forest and the natural process of the ecosystem continue to, to do what they do. But uh, for us here now, you know, that kind that kind of a fire and devastation is really it removes huge chunks and swaths of areas that are very special. And we know how rare those landscapes are. But it also is a reminder too, you know, of just sort of the world is going to continue to do what it's going to do. It doesn't really care about bonsai. Yeah, that's you know, right. it certainly doesn't care about us. And as far as as that fire was concerned, that was just fuel more than anything else. <laughs> uh, I think the scarier thing, though, is what the mentality around forest fire suppression and the policy around forest fire suppression, um, what that becomes when you see those kind of events. Because you know, it was a perfect storm to create big fires like that. But the the, the thought process after that is, well, let's go clear all of that underbrush and fuel out of our forests so that we all of a sudden don't have to uh, worry about a fire getting that big again. And then all of a sudden, instead of a fire annihilating collectible material, it's, it's actually, um, you know, teams of people going out there and eradicating it. And so we, we, we deal with a lot of different uh, things impacting those environments. Yeah. So when you're driving around here in Australia, like talking about the landscapes and that, mm. how different is our landscape here mm. compared to the United States when you're just driving along the side of the road and looking out at the trees? Yeah. Can you see aesthetically a big difference? And can you see that that's coming across in our bonsai? Yeah, I mean, I, I so Australia looks very similar to Southern California. Yep. Yeah. I mean, in, in California, both of them being Mediterranean regions, it makes sense. It's a very unique plant palette. It's a very unique weather environment and condition. It's a very unique landscape that makes Mediterranean regions of the world. But, um, and, and it's, it's one, <clears throat> you know, it's one aesthetic of a landscape that has obviously opportunity and uniqueness inside of it. Um, and I mean, I think whether or not you're trying to make sure that the aesthetic of the landscape is in your work, I think it's just inherent and sort of a part of the process of bonsai creation. I think when you go back and look at it, I mean, I look at Tracy's pots and I see the aesthetic of the landscape and I, I'm almost positive she's not sitting there thinking, I want to make this bonsai pot look Australian. She just can't help to make it look Australian, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that in in looking at particularly the the national collections trees in Canberra you're you're kind of watching that like slow deliberate cautious but i think knowingly necessary departure from trying to duplicate a bonsai practice in the japanese form of the art that isn't authentic to Australia. Yep. Uh, 
and and that that's a tough departure you know there's a it's a little scary it's a little uncertain there's a lot of controversy with that but I think it will create a far more powerful connection point for the Australian community and for the public when that collection continues to find its own voice and and sort of representative form yeah because I, I found that working on trees um, at workshops and stuff uh, working on a lot of natives tea trees and melaleucas and things like that right you'd be working on it and somebody else will come up and say well no 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 you should be you know you know front back left or what whatever it might right. be and you should do this and you should do that and it's you know I always say to them well this is Australian material. Yeah. Shouldn't we try and push our own aesthetic onto this rather than taking a Japanese approach to it? Or do we do we not have a blank canvas here to work with as long as our fundamentals are correct? Right. And the tree is healthy. Yeah. When it comes to just aesthetic design, yep. do we not have our own blank page to work with and you know, start creating and put something unique out there? Do we have to follow, you know, the Japanese aesthetic with our trees? Yeah. Because I don't, I don't feel like we do. I feel like we've got an opportunity here to put yeah. something new into the world. And I, yeah, I, I agree. But I think it's even, I think it's even more like, uh, I think it goes beyond opportunity. I, I think it's almost like we have a necessity yeah you know what i'm saying if 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 it's going to be if bonsai is going to be and, and when you think about the power of the medium as an art form if bonsai is going to be something that does have the ability to to connect with people and to um potentially be be a little bit of a doorway into whatever it is that that has the opportunity or power to open up for them the way that that's going to happen is not by connecting them to an art form from a country whose culture, although very, very beautiful, is also very difficult to understand. I think it comes from a connection to a medium that is opening the door for us to appreciate whatever aspect of our own culture or native environment, right? Or, yeah. or necessity to be in relationship with that is. And I think that's really where... I think having the fundamentals is necessary, but definitely um, developing just in the same way that Japanese bonsai has some formality around it. I don't like the, the word rules, but I do think it's important to have an understanding of what it means to pursue Japanese bonsai. I think that Australian bonsai, North American bonsai, etc., there has to be something beyond the blank slate for there to be any notion of what what does make a tea tree a tea tree yep. aesthetically, you know, and, and horticulturally, how do you handle a tea tree? And, and what makes a melaleuca a melaleuca? And horticulturally, how do you how do you handle a melaleuca? You know, those are the now the specific nuances that I think Australia is just starting to, to sort of dabble in and explore. Yeah, so that would be the, the fundamentals mm-hmm. and the, the horticulture. As long as you've got that down. Yeah. And then once you move on to just looking aesthetically at the tree. Because when I work on like a juniper or a black pine, there's kind of things I feel like I have to do when I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. But then when I sit down in front of an Australian native, I feel a little bit more free. Yeah. And 
I can kind of let the tree tell me what it wants mm-hmm. rather than saying, well, I should be bending this down here and creating a pad and doing this up here with like tea trees. I just look at the tree and, oh, okay, it's telling me what to do. This mm-hmm. is what the tree wants. And, and I found that all my natives have worked from that point. There's been no preconceived notion in mind mm. approaching the tree. Because mm-hmm. if I approach a juniper, then... I've already got certain certain your biases impacting you. Yeah, yeah, and just certain aesthetics that you know I know that I probably should do this or I probably should do that. Mm. And every time I work on an Australian native, it, there's something new and unique that I find mm-hmm. that I do with the tree, and every everyone's just I don't know. It's more special than the last. Yeah, and it, it's exciting and it's new and it's unique and yeah. you know that that's the thing that I'm loving about the Australian natives at the moment. Yeah. And um, I think it's the same kind of thing in America with the collected material there. Yeah. There's just, you know, so many unique things being done to these trees. I think it's like, I think it's similar. And also I think it's, it's very different because, you know, I'm, I'm envious of Australia to a degree because it's like, well, yeah, with a Melaleuca tea tree or Kunzia, there's no, there's no real written, or photographed example, right? Mm. So it, it truly is like, I don't know. Let's just, let's see what happens here, right? In the United States, having a Rocky Mountain juniper, Sierra juniper, California juniper, it's still a juniper. Yeah. And that is where it gets rather difficult to, to try and, and understand how is the form of a juniper handled in the way that it's representative of a landscape, you know, because certainly the bonsai model for the most part isn't necessarily, but sometimes, sometimes it is, you know, sometimes you have those examples in the native landscape that it literally looks like a bonsai. Yep. Um, but I, I, I do envy you guys because, uh, because there aren't examples of tea trees and melaleucas on this international level created outside of, of the culture and environment of Australia that are, that are, manipulating your concept of what those could be you guys are literally free yeah exactly yeah and it'll be interesting to see where that challenges people and takes conversation too Mm -hmm. because i find that with uh how would you say it like classic bonsai i guess you would call it Mm -hmm. there's always people who don't want to challenge that or they just want to stick to that way Mm -hmm. because uh, an example, and it's actually funny because um, this was uh, maybe a year ago now, mm. but you had done a live stream on Mariah with a rock planted rock planting where you'd put a bunch of whips mm-hmm. on a rock. Yeah. And um, this is where I found myself challenged first on the idea mm-hmm. is to me, when I look at Mr. Kimura's work, you you take his rock plantings and you kind of think, well, that's what a rock planting should be. Sure. You you look at them and when he does a rock planting, he puts very small whips on mm-hmm. and the scale of the rock is, you know, a lot larger than the scale of the trees. The, tree, sure. the trees look tiny and it does look like a landscape where you would go out and you would see a huge mountainside with, you know, these are full-size trees, but they look tiny. Sure. So when you had done that one, 
the trees were a lot bigger mm-hmm. on the on the rock and the rock was a lot smaller yeah so i tried to start a discussion about this um with a with a bonsai group and got absolutely blasted <laughs> like absolutely blasted and like i ended up saying to him i was like i don't even think ryan would have blasted on that like because mm-hmm. my thing was um i felt that when doing a rock planting the tree should be smaller in scale than the rock mm. like by a far amount but you know you're pushing those limits of you know that's the japanese aesthetic that's mm-hmm. what they do but this is you know this is united states of america mm-hmm. it probably looks different there and i just haven't seen that aesthetic mm-hmm. so well and i think it um you know, I think it even goes beyond like for something like that. I, I really think where where Mirai has where Mirai has separated itself, or or at least where we've sort of formed some of of what makes us um, a little bit unique is is the notion of just quantifying the the concepts behind the design. You know, because when you look at a rock planting you have two options in a rock planting you can feature the rock or you can feature the tree yeah and that's trees maybe right maybe it's a tree maybe it's trees multiple trees maybe it's a you know a tremendous number of trees but you still have what is the focal point of of that that composition and i think once you ask that question because the stone could be the most dominant piece of the composition. And I think the smaller the tree, the more dominant the stone. If you have an interesting stone and that's going to be the backbone of that aesthetic, great. But if it's if it's not as interesting, then why would it be? You know, and now you're still trying to convey a concept, but you're using some other order of priority to do so in the tree. And being able to wrestle with that and make sense of that logic behind why that scale is created or utilized or the composition, what is the birthplace of the idea for the composition is, is doing bonsai on a higher level, I think, because now there's intentionality behind the decision instead of an acceptance of what is supposed to be. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, in the end, you know, you, you do like a piece for what it is, but it's just challenging people. Yeah. And challenging their thoughts on, you know. Sure. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, push pushing pushing them and seeing how they how they respond and what what happens and what is the, you know, sensation that's uh evoked by doing so. Yeah. And I I don't think that I don't think that the goal in create the creation of bonsai should be for everybody to say that's good. No. You exactly. Know? I think I think Western bonsai has looked for approval and looked for acceptance and looked for somebody to tell validation, tell them that what you're doing is correct. But uh, to a large degree, correct, quote unquote, correct would be taking rules like first branch, second branch, back branch and the traditional model, which which again, like I say this a lot, it doesn't even exist in Japan. You know, necessarily, nobody's spouting rules in Japan. Uh, so it's our Western way of trying to quantify uh, a culture that functions more in the gray than the black and the white. And that's that's really dangerous, and it's, it's a misunderstood. And again, a reason why it's very difficult for us to do bonsai in the Japanese way, because we just don't think that way. We don't understand that way uh, as Westerners. But... Um, the just having that conciseness to the intentionality of what we're creating is imperative i think yeah 
because I, I spoke to Hugh about, um, you know, with the internet and being able to access a whole bunch of different artists now and being able to see their work. Mm-hmm. Because back in the day, you might have only been able to see a certain artist's work by buying one of their books. Right. Or maybe even visiting their garden. So it was a lot harder to see works from around the world. Yes. But these days, you can jump on Instagram and you can see any artist from around the world. And I think it's kind of like music where when you hear a band, you can kind of hear their influences. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you can say, well, you know, that's a rock band. And you can kind of hear the ACDC and, sure. you know, the Motley Crue and all this kind of stuff in there. And I I think we're going to start seeing that now in Bonsai where mm-hmm. you're going to be able to look at an artist's work and say, well, you can tell that they're a little bit influenced by you know, whether it's Ryan Neal or mm-hmm. Bjorn or whether yep. they're in, influenced by people like Kunio Kobayashi um, and you'll be able to see that mix and that hybrid of styles come together and once again, if we if we don't challenge ourselves and we don't do that kind of thing, we don't move forward, we just become stagnant Sure. and, you know, we don't create new styles. I think that's where people like yourself that are really challenging things and pushing people to try new things mm. it, it's going to be great for the art and it's the it's the same with failures too yeah because you know i said to hugh in our podcast that i think a lot of people don't push themselves in bonsai because of the the fear of failure mm-hmm. and you know as hugh said it's rightfully so because nobody wants to kill a plant mm. and especially if you've paid a big big amount of money for a plant you don't really want to push the boundaries too far because you don't want to you don't want to kill that plant Mm -hmm. but without pushing boundaries we don't move forward and and what is what is failure what is failure necessarily because i would argue people aren't pushing the aesthetic boundary not because of a fear of killing the plant because of a fear of people's judgment of what they're going to say about what they do you know, I mean, I think that's, I think that's actually the, I think that's actually the, the limitation to people pushing. And I mean, the whole notion of just, the whole notion of, of, of even just sort of giving people a little shove or challenging the intentionality behind their action is to say like, do something that people don't necessarily like like yep. there's nothing wrong with that like get it out of your system see what it feels like because you know when we put a ponderosa pine in a in a metal light fixture you know it wasn't for any anything other than to see what does it look like when we do that yep you know and when when you speaking about just the influence and the visibility of of this now with social media it's like well when that piece gets put put on social media or on instagram it's extremely controversial it's very polarizing you know but if i hadn't put that tree in that metal box and i put it in a bonsai container and i put it on social media nobody would have said anything you know they would have they would have looked at it and they would have moved on with their day like the fact that pieces that are challenging the accepted that so many people want to continue to try and hold bonsai in that that accepted field of conduct behavior aesthetic right this is what you're supposed to do just stay here and we don't need to respond or react to it and you move outside of that and all of a sudden it's like i hate it i love it i hate it 
I love it. I would rather be there. Yep. I would rather be where somebody has a, a visceral response to my work, whether it's positive, and I would rather have a negative response to my work than no response, not in terms of somebody commenting on Instagram, but in terms of somebody experiencing a sensation. And that's that is that's asking for quote unquote failure, whatever failure means, right? In terms of the public opinion, if that's what's guiding our process and bonsai, uh, then I'm asking for it yeah. with what I'm trying to do. I mean, I, I feel the same way. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I had a tea tree, and this thing's been in a nursery pot for ages now, and it's been styled, and it hasn't been put in a bonsai pot just for the fact that I could never find the pot that suited that tree mm. because the pot that I needed needed to have more of that Australian aesthetic. And I finally found the pot that I wanted because I knew that I wanted something that was a little bit off-white mm-hmm. and had that kind of Australian cracking mm-hmm. aesthetic in the pot and I wanted it to be round and just all these parameters that had to be perfect before I'd put this tree in a pot and I finally found the pot. There was only one thing that was wrong with the pot was the fact that it had bulging sides and the top diameter was smaller than the the middle of the pot. Mm -hmm. So even though the pot could hold a certain amount of roots, to actually get it in, you had to take a fair amount of roots away. And normally with tea trees, root work is very sketchy. Mm. like very sketchy they don't they don't like being touched and taking a lot off could be detrimental to the tree Mm -hmm. but it was one of those things it's like this is the pot for this tree we're gonna go for it yeah we're gonna try and you know win or failure we're gonna give it a go yeah and i probably cut half of the roots off Mm -hmm. maybe even more Mm. and put it in that pot and it kicked on it mm. absolutely kicked on and now in my garden I have the biggest wind sitting there because I was told so many times that's not going to work, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to go in that pot. And, yeah. And I was like, you know what? It's going in that pot. Yeah. <laughs> so now every time I look at that tree, I'm just like, yeah, we won. <laughs> we won. We did it. But I mean, I think that, I think that mentality is, is, I think the mentality of that's never going to work uh, in a situation where there is realistic opportunity for success and the technique is improving to allow that success to be had, I think this is a marker of an evolving bonsai community. Yep. You know, because, I mean, when I came back from, from Japan, the general consensus was Rocky Mountain junipers cannot be good bonsai. I mean, like, when I say that now, 10 years after coming back from Japan... And I see what Rocky Mountain junipers have become, not only in, in North America, but in the world of bonsai. And, the, and people were saying the, the the vast accepted consideration of Rocky Mountain junipers in North America is they cannot be good bonsai. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and I think Australia is going to have that kind of awakening and awareness where people are like, you can't do this with tea trees. You know, you can't, this can't be a good bonsai. You can't reduce the growth on this. This won't back bud. I think as you guys push that boundary, increase your horticultural and technical savvy and prowess, that you'll start to recognize that all of the preconceived notions about what's been said to be factual 
probably has a lot of chinks in the armor and holes in the game that you can exploit to make great bonsai. Yeah, exactly. And I think you said it once before in your podcast about somebody who had success with one thing where you said, I want to see them have success with that 10 more times yes. before it's, you know, and yes. you know, I may have just gotten lucky with that tea tree, but without pushing those boundaries, I never would have found out, you know, and maybe I'll try it again. Yeah. I think you have to. Mm. I think you have to. I think you have to now take, you know, a lot of tea trees and repot them over a fairly broad range of time. And obviously, you know, the thing about it, I think, is when people in the Western bonsai world want to experiment with bonsai, I think they typically try to get a uniformity of stock. So I'm going to, you know, go get some tube stock and I'm going to repot it all and see what happens and experiment that way. Well, we know in bonsai, each tree is different like a human being, right? So your tea tree that you repotted was successful. The only way that you continue to experiment on a level that gives you bonsai knowledge is to confront that opportunity to do the move that is best for the aesthetic of the tree and try to horticulturally and technically keep that tree alive in that action that's really where you start to tease out the tolerances of a species in my mind. Because with bonsai, we're doing something so radically against the grain for common horticulture. You you could go as far as saying we're doing something ridiculously stupid. Yep. It just looks too awesome. You know? Like, <laughs> it looks so awesome, we're willing to be stupid with bonsai. And that's where the challenge is in the horticulture of the whole thing. And And I think that's where the aesthetic pursuit drives us to do things that we technically well we sh- horticulturally shouldn't yeah yet we do you know and in that in that same sort of thing do you ever get kickback from activists because i know there's some people out there man they just they have the silliest arguments for things and they're like oh my god you're torturing trees yeah. and you're doing this and it's like yeah oh man and they, they go in this big spiel about you know how plants can feel and mm. they do this and they do that and then it's just like do you mow your lawn <laughs> yeah like when you mow your lawn do you have a vigil yeah like because that was a massacre yeah <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i mean you're always gonna have to deal with that but i think it's important to deal with that i think it keeps us honest yep i think it keeps us aware And I think if we're not asking ourselves those pivotal questions, we're probably not thinking hard enough. And I think if we don't continue to refine that conversation, we're probably not thinking hard enough. Um, I, 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 I actually have come to really value the fact that there are people that want to sit down and have that conversation. And I, and I value the fact that some of them are quite radical about their views. And although uneducated, it's an opportunity to hone your blade to be able to think and speak intelligently about bonsai. It's necessary in my mind. Yeah, because yeah. I think most bonsai artists, they're not... I mean, the way we look at it, we're not torturing trees. We're giving them a fantastic life. Mm-hmm. You know, we're giving them all the nutrients that they could ever want. And, you know, they get watered when they need it, not when it just happens to rain. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, the way I see it, they're, they're living the life. and yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, like on a physiological level, it's very easy to shut down that conversation by saying, if you took a cross section of the tree, you would be able to clearly delineate when it became a bonsai. 
by the rapid expansion of the size of the growth rings and the abundant health that's been produced in that tree. You yeah. Know? So tor- torture, torture wouldn't create that kind of a condition. Um, you know, I, I think you could, you could very easily talk about the care that we give it. And I think the hard thing, I mean, in Australia, fire is a part of your guys' landscape and it's a part of the environment that you exist in. Yep. And so all of a sudden, you know, when something, when a whole area of Australia gets just absolutely ransacked by fire, and you start to try and draw that correlation of, well, was it more valuable for that to be a puff of smoke or would it have been more valuable for that to potentially be utilized to create a connection point? for somebody viewing this tree to understand their relationship to this very special place and our necessity to preserve this, I find that puff of smoke to be less valuable than the impact that that bonsai can have, you know? And I, uh, that's how I reconcile it for myself. Yeah. So when, when you came back from Japan and went back to the United States to work on bonsai, what would you say was the biggest difference for you in working in bonsai? Was it horticulturally different or was it a bigger change in aesthetic Mm. or was it just the culture around bonsai itself? Mm -hmm. Was it because the the other thing I wanted to ask you is, do you feel that in places like Australia and in the United States, do you feel like bonsai would be a bigger thing if we had something like the Kokufu Ten, mm. do you think the Kokufu Ten really drives bonsai in Japan to the level it is, mm-hmm. or do you think it's the passion in Japan that drives bonsai to the mm-hmm. level it is? I think so. Coming back from Japan, everything was different. The horticulture was different. The aesthetics, and I was institutionalized. I mean, th- this is something that. To and, and there was a question last night in the demonstrations or, or yesterday in the panel discussion, something about, you know, there's a lot more people going to Japan, but they're not necessarily a lot more foreigners going to Japan to study bonsai, but they're not necessarily staying very long or as long or not finishing an apprenticeship. And how do I feel about that? You know, and it's a double edged sword. It's like it's beautiful that uh, there's accessibility to that and people can realize, you know, a dream or a portion of their dream, but it's dangerous for people to go and and spend enough time to know just enough to be dangerous but not have the full scope of knowledge to actually be proficient. Um, and one of the things that happens in an apprenticeship when you commit to a master and apprentice yourself to a master in a culture that demands the kind of dedication that art forms in Japan demand is you really have to sacrifice the self. And in doing so, when you finish that process, you you are institutionalized because you've given up all of those aspects of personal preference and approach to really be uh, a completely wide open sponge for what you can learn, letting go of the ego and, and sort of giving yourself to the process of, of your master's approach. And so coming back from Japan, I was institutionalized towards Mr. Kimura's approach and the Japanese approach, but I was suddenly in a culture that didn't have the same constructs as Japanese bonsai, same expectations, same maturation, same aesthetic guidance, right? Uh, Same patronage, uh, same horticultural implications. It was entirely different. And that 
that was very jarring. It was harder for me to come back than it was for me to go to Japan because I was identityless when I came back. Um, but it was also really beautiful because that started the, the sort of the internal conflict about what the hell am I doing yeah. with this whole thing? You know, and that's really what started the exploration. And it wasn't until 2011 when I went to the Nolanders Trophy uh, and I was wiring a Rocky Mountain Juniper in my workshop. I went to the Nolanders Trophy. I wired uh, a, a Mugo Pine and a uh, Phoenician Juniper. And then I flew on to Japan and I helped Mr. Kimura prepare for the Kokofu exhibition. This like back to back to back trio of cultures and species and experiences and and each one breeding a different aesthetic product from, from my uh, production and my own hands created three different things as a response to the culture. That was when I was like, oh, this is different. Yep. There's something very different here. Um, and so, you know, looking at what created that, that context with which Japanese bonsai has become such a formalized approach, I do think it's the kokufu. I think the kokufu drives the economy because bonsai professionals, in order to have a client, have to have a proficiency that allows them to get those trees accepted in the judging process. But I also think the sale of trees to be a kokufu uh, exhibitable tree has created a standard. It's created a box and it's created an expectation of what a bonsai should look like, what it's expected to look like, what meets the preferences of those people ordained to select these trees as stellar examples of bonsai. And the, over the course of time, that the, the, the pressure of the culture of Japan has just continued to push the walls of the box in tighter and tighter to the point where you get almost a monoculture of, of concept and aesthetic. But but it's like, well, would the culture of Japan have ever evolved without the Kokufu exhibition, the, the bonsai culture? No, it wouldn't have. Yep. There wouldn't be a realistic way for a professional to make a living in Japan without the Kokufu. I, 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 at least I don't think. Yeah. Right? Um, and so then when you start to look at, okay, well, how do you evolve Western bonsai cultures then? Do you need a Kokufu exhibition? Well... I think this again is where I would come back and say, much like the stone planting, is the stone the focus or is the tree the focus? I would start to look at in the question of, because we have such a beautiful example of the pros and cons of using an exhibition to establish a bonsai culture, is a bonsai culture's success based on the economy around that commodity? Or is a bonsai culture's success based around sort of the morality and the intention of that culture? And I think one thing that we probably have learned from Japan is, is obviously the tradition, the pursuit of perfection, this, uh, you know, seeking the mastery of technique is going to breed a very high aesthetic quality. Commoditizing the art form is probably going to chip away at its integrity. And that's up to every bonsai culture to then decide and every bonsai contributor whether it's a passionate practitioner or a professional, to decide where are you going to put your, in what basket are you going to put your eggs? Yep. You know? And, so, and what culture do you want to exist in? So in saying that, do you also feel that as bonsai is on the rise, because I've heard it many times before, <clears throat> you and other artists in particular have said that bonsai is not, uh, 
in terms of monetary value, it's not a living and you don't think it will ever be a living. But mm. do you think that if Bonsai continues to rise to the level that it is, do you think there may be opportunity for, you know, professionals to make a living from Bonsai as it as more and more people get into it, more and more people have collections that need looking after, schools can pop up, things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm somebody saying you can't make a living doing bonsai while I'm making a living doing bonsai. So you do have to take that with a grain of salt, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think it is to say like, um, this isn't an easy way to make a living, but that doesn't mean anything, right? Because like, what is easy? Hmm. You know, like, yeah, yeah you, you go do something you hate and get paid for. That's not exactly the life I want to live. That's why I chose bonsai. And it's freaking rough hmm. to try and do bonsai for a living. And I think where it is, I think where it is very um, necessary as a professional, where I think people probably do see what Mariah does, and and I think it probably is, it, it is it is pretty cool to see. I mean, like what what I've created is what I wanted that didn't exist when I was a kid. Yeah. In the bonsai world, and and I'm really excited that we've been able to create that. But I do want to make sure that I communicate to people that hey. Like, you really need to be ready to go to war in terms of, of actualizing this this desire to be a bonsai professional because you really get, you have to fight for it. You have to fight to be able to make a living and figure out how that happens. And for me, it was commoditizing education because I didn't want to sell these ancient trees to people that can't take care of them or I didn't want to sell them for values that were less than what I thought they were worth because I needed the money to pay the electric bill. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, and and the way that I got around the whole notion of the morality around collecting and the morality around dealing with these ancient trees and the morality around this this medium was I really, uh, I really f put my eggs in. I'm very, f very comfortable sharing knowledge. And that, that was where I went to be able to find that capacity to make a living. Yeah, because with with most things, and I mean, you probably don't want to call bonsai business, mm -hmm. but with most business, you really have to find the unexplored avenues. Because mm -hmm. with bonsai, like you said, if you were to just go into it thinking, I'm going to grow some trees and sell them and make a lot of money, it's just unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Because by the time you grow a tree and you know style it out, develop it, put it in a nice pot and sell it for X amount of dollars, if you take that and divide it between the hours of work, the amount of water that's gone into it, fertilizer, all that kind of stuff, you, you're working for peanuts. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, have you ever run those numbers? Do you know what that looks like? No, <laughs> I don't want to. It, 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 it would shock you. Mm. At uh, It would shock you at where the threshold is for what you can put into a tree and still make a profit. Yeah. And it would literally uh, be equivalent to buying a very inexpensive pre-grown piece of stock, spending less than 10 minutes repotting it on the cheapest possible soil you can utilize in the cheapest possible pot and selling that as rapidly as possible to even make a marginal profit. Yeah. And that would be the extent of how you would make a living doing bonsai from a commoditization of the tree. Yeah. And so when you start to look at that, it's like, well, well you know, we better think about something else. <laughs> we yeah. better find a different way. Because until bonsai gets to that level where it's very popular and, 
it becomes a thing where, you know, five backyards in a 10 house street have, you know, bonsais in them, then there really isn't going to be that avenue for, you know, somebody coming and taking care of plants or working Mm. on plants or doing curation or anything like that, because those are the avenues that are going to have to be explored to, to make business. And Hugh is somewhat being successful at that at the moment you know he's got clients and he's working on trees and you know he's got his school and running classes and i mean education man hats off to him because i mean he's making it work education i mean think about everybody everybody needs to know about this to pursue anything more beyond uh, uh, a fancy whim or interest they have to be educated yeah i mean it's it, it is simply true but i'm out of time no worries that was awesome. Right, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, thank, thank you. Doing over there. Uh, thank, thank you for uh, asking me to be a part of it, man. I'm glad that we got to do this. And I apologize for it being short, but uh, at least it was dense. Yeah, I'm humbled. You know that you said yes anyway. Cool. And um, thanks for coming out to Australia. And thanks for last night. It was a, uh, it was a great night and getting to see you and Cunio work on yeah you know trees side by side was yeah once in a lifetime opportunity so yeah probably probably the only time yeah, yeah so yeah. that was good for me too yeah no it's a pleasure i'm sure we'll see each other again soon next time i'm in uh, in the country we'll uh, we'll wrap again yeah thank you cool man all right guys thanks for listening i hope you guys enjoyed that as much as i enjoyed making it ryan and his crew are all great people and we're so glad that they did the podcast we're humbled to have them on I just wanted to quickly let you guys know about some of the stuff that Ryan has going on. If you didn't already know, he has a company called Bonsai Marai. They have a website with a great library of educational videos and they do a live stream every week. You can find that if you search Marai Live on Google or go to their main site, Bonsai Marai. You can also follow them on Instagram and Facebook. And they do a podcast as well. And I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already listening to their podcast. But I'll tell you about it anyway. It's called Asymmetry. And you can probably find it at all the same places where you get this podcast. So just go up to the search bar and search for Asymmetry. And you should find it. It's probably one of the best bonsai podcasts on the internet. So go and check it out. All right, thanks, guys, and I'll see you in the next episode.